Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, We have been reading the story of the first Christians together from the book of Acts. And about two weeks ago, we saw the story begin to shift away from Peter and the church in Jerusalem and Judea and towards Paul and the church in Antioch, sending him out to spread the good news of Jesus out into the rest of the settled world, uh, talking to people um, who... uh, for whom the story of Scripture was deeply unfamiliar, um, people for whom the story of Scripture was often completely unheard of before he came. And Paul is now traveling with a guy named Silas on what we call his second missionary journey, and they are pushing deep to the north and to the west, and they eventually make it to a Roman colony called Philippi. So we're going to pick up there in Acts 16. I'll read Acts 16 for you, verses uh, 16 through 34. You can follow along where it's printed in the order of worship, or you can follow along in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Acts 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all of the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just sang together really ancient words where we ask that you would shine on us your brightest ray. And so that's what we ask now. 
um, that you would meet us all in the places where we find ourselves this morning. No matter what kind of weeks or years or months we have come out of, no matter where we find ourselves inside of faith or outside of faith, no matter how near or far from you we feel, meet every one of us through this word and show us again the grace of the word that bears our flesh, who is seated at your right hand praying for people like us right now. Show us his grace and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, when I was a kid, I rode yard sale bikes. Uh, And here's what I mean by that. I mean until I was about 13 or so and I got my first 10-speed bike. What I rode uh, was a succession of bikes that had been purchased for five or ten bucks at some yard sale or garage sale somewhere. Usually these bikes were painted black. Uh, Often the wheels did not match one another, and occasionally these bikes would have two different pedals on them. And I did not care at all, because when and where I grew up, kids rode bikes all of the time. Most of us had yard sale bikes, and we rode the heck out of those bikes until they got busted or bent or too small. And then our folks would get us another yard sale bike. But then sometime during the summer of 1985, I was reading a comic book, and I saw an ad for a Schwinn Scrambler. The Schwinn Scrambler was not spray-painted black. (laughs) It was not mismatched. It had a chrome fork and caliber brakes and an option for mag wheels. And that ad struck home in my little 12-year-old heart. It achieved its goal because I started begging my dad for a Schwinn Scrambler. He was kind. He was firm. He told me we couldn't afford it. He resisted all of my pleading. And then one day I tried a different angle with him. And I was pretty sure that this was the angle that was going to seal the deal. I asked him a question. I said, Dad, why don't you use the money that's in the freezer to buy me the bike? All right, I'll explain what that's about. This was back before uh, ATMs were around, at least not in my part of town. This was back before debit cards. So like most folks did at the time, my parents would take cash out of the bank for stuff that they needed to buy before their next payday. And rather than carry that cash all around where they went with them, they'd stash it somewhere till they needed it. And my parents, for reasons known only to them, stashed their money in a jar in the freezer. And I knew where that money was. I had counted that money, and I knew there was enough in there to get that bike. So I thought I had my dad over a barrel. I knew he could afford the Schwinn Scrambler because I had seen that money with my own eyes. Why don't you use the money in the freezer to buy me the bike? Felt like a simple question to me, just math, simple math. But of course now I know, just like all of us know, that 12-year-old knucklehead Aaron had no idea, really, what he was asking. What I was asking was to spend the grocery money and to spend the gas money <laughs> and to spend the clothing money and to spend any money we'd need for medicine or any money we'd need for an emergency. I didn't have a clue about any of that stuff at the time. But believe me, <laughs> my dad took that question and went pretty deep with it. <laughs> He took the handoff and ran for a touchdown. 
my simple question to open up a whole other world to me, I learned about money and I learned about budgets that day. And I want to suggest that the famous question that is at the heart of the story that we just read together is kind of like my question. We'll talk more about this later, but I think when the jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? He doesn't really know all that he's asking. Of course, he knows what he means when he asks that question. It's completely reasonable based on what's happening. But Paul goes deep with it. (laughs) Deeper than the jailer would have ever imagined, and it turns out to be the best day of his life. And whether all of us in here would come clean about this or not, we have to admit that this question, what must I do to be saved, is a question every human being asks at some point or another in their lives. Many of us ask it, and and we don't even realize that it's a spiritual question. How can I get out of this? How do I get out of this mess? Most of us ask that question pretty frequently and with insistence and with concern. So this is a story for all of us. So it starts with Paul and Silas in Philippi. It's a Roman colony. And like we've seen over the last two weeks, they are in fully pagan territory. And by that I mean that they're in places that aren't familiar with all, at all with the story of Scripture. They aren't familiar at all with the God of Abraham, let alone the name of Jesus. There isn't a synagogue in that place, so they've taken to going outside of the city to a little place by the river where apparently all of the spiritually-minded seeker types went to hang out and pray. So they're headed out to that place by the river one day, and Luke tells us they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, and she brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Literally what Luke says is that she had the python spirit, the spirit of the python, which only sounds to me just a little bit weirder than a spirit of divination. But Luke's first readers would have known exactly what he meant. It's a way of referring to an ancient story about the oracle of Delphi, who was said to be able to predict the future. So this young girl is locked into a life of slavery because she's good at telling fortunes. Now, listen, there was as much skepticism about this kind of stuff, as much suspicion about this kind of stuff in the first century as there is in ours. I mean, mostly the people who did this kind of thing were cynical people preying on the gullible, preying on the tourists, and everybody pretty much knew it. But it's very clear that there's something else going on with this girl. It's very clear that she is not only trapped by her owners, she is trapped by something else, and it is evil. And I know there's some way we can hear that, and and maybe some of us in here, we want to push back and we want to say, look, there's probably some other way to describe what it is that we're seeing and what's going on with her, some psychological explanation some sociological explanation, some scientific explanation for her behavior and what she does. And I just want to say that those kind of explanations are not adequate for what we see here. 
the universe is way, way more open than we moderns like to admit. I think most of us here this morning know deep in our bones, even if we don't speak it out, (laughs) we know deep in our bones that there is more to this world and more to living life than what we can see with our eyes and feel with our hands, that there's more to living human life and being a human in this world than what can be easily and simply quantified. Love is one of those things. (laughs) And so is good. And so is evil. And nothing else but evil can really explain the depth of this girl's entrapment. So she starts following Paul and Silas and all the rest of them around and she's crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Actually, what she does is she shrieks this over and over and over again, day after day after day. Now, you could yell worse things than that. And what she's saying is true as far as it goes, but not in the way that she means it. I mean, remember where they are. The, The Most High God is not a phrase that would be heard in ancient Philippi in the same way that we hear it. (laughs) These are people who don't know anything about the God of Abraham, and if they do know anything about the God of Abraham, they definitely don't think he's the Most High God. Anyone who hears that phrase would think, oh, she must be talking about Zeus or one of the other major deities in the pantheon. And salvation could mean just about anything being prosperous, being saved from a calamity. So what she's shrieking is not exactly false advertising, but it's not super helpful either. And it goes on for days and days. Clearly, she is not okay. Clearly, she is in pain. So I don't know really why Paul and Silas put up for it for as long as they did, but it would wear on anyone. It would trouble anyone. Luke says that Paul became greatly annoyed. Actually, the word that he uses could just just as easily mean greatly troubled. And I'm sure that it was a little bit of both. So he turns and he talks to the evil. He says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And church, just like that, it did. And just like that, this girl is set free. She will not be exploited anymore. She will not be used anymore. She will not feel that particular pain anymore. And so while there are a lot of things that could be said about this moment, I just want to say this, and that is that the name of Jesus is greater than any other name. There is no evil that can ever or will ever or has ever stood against it, and one day all evil will lie dead at his feet. And church, that is absolutely true. (laughs) And it is absolutely true that this girl is free. And there are immediate ramifications to that freedom. Her owners see that their hope of gain is gone. 
Now, we don't have time to talk much about what happens in verses 19 through 24, but it's pretty painfully easy to sum up. The owners of the slave girl drag Paul and Silas into the public square before the magistrates. There would have been two of them in every Roman colony. And it's unclear if what they want is compensation or what they want is revenge. But what is very clear is that greed and an ugly nationalism is on display and it is fueled by religious prejudice. And you know, this is not the first time, nor will it be the last time, that money and religion and politics get together to do something awful. That's worth thinking about. But the bottom line for Paul and Silas is that they get stripped and beaten, and it's a Roman beating. So there's a good chance that along with open wounds, there are also broken bones, and who knows what else. They're taken to the prison with an order for the jailer to keep them safely. So for good measure, he throws them into the inner prison and he fastens their feet in stocks that are locked to the floor. So there they are, bruised and beaten and bleeding. And it's about midnight and Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Holy, beautiful jerks keeping everybody up so late with their caterwauling, singing through busted lips and broken noses. And it must have been amazing because <laughs> the other prisoners are listening. And then for the second time in that day, the thin veil. The thin veil that exists between what we pretend is our closed world and the rest of everything else slips aside for a minute. And Luke doesn't say this is exactly what's happening, but we know what's happening. The real most high God sends a powerful localized earthquake to shake that jail at Philippi. And in an instant, the doors clank open and the fetters break free from the floor and the walls. And we realize the slave girl is not the only one who got free that day. Now the jailer who was likely a retired soldier, appears to have been sleeping at the jail. Verse 27 says he, he woke up and he saw what had happened. And without any hesitation, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself. Church, this is really important. This guy did a quick calculation in his head, or maybe he recalled a calculation that he had done ahead of time so that he'd be ready for this moment. And at the end of the calculation, this is how it worked out. It would be better if I was dead. It'd be better if I was dead. It would be better for me to die by my own hand It'd be better for my family and friends to be without me than to face whatever it is that I'm going to need to face now. Church, that's a serious, 
very painful place for someone to be in. To feel that alone and that out of resources. Maybe you have felt that way at some point in your life. Maybe you know someone or love someone who has. And you can look at that calculation all you want from the outside, and you can know that that calculation doesn't add up, and it never adds up. And you can beg, and you can plead, and you can pray. But if you're in it, in that moment, it's a lot harder to see that it doesn't add up. So, man, I am so thankful Paul was there. I am so thankful Paul saw what was happening. Luke says, he cries out with a loud voice, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. I mean, if this was a Hollywood escape picture, none of the prisoners would be concerned about the warden. In fact, they might do him in themselves. But this is not a Hollywood escape picture. This is the story of the first Christians who had been told by Jesus that they had been made to love their enemies. So Paul sees this guy who's about ready to take his own life, and his first thought is not, this will make for an easy getaway. His first thought is, no, he's got to live. He can't do this. And he yells out at the top of his lungs to get this guy's attention. Church, may Jesus give people like us grace to do the same thing in the same kind of situation. May Jesus give us his grace to move towards people who feel alone and out of resources. And sure enough, it's true. No one has made for the exits. I mean, obviously, the singing and praying had gotten to the rest of the prisoners, and it's not really surprising. I mean, even if they didn't know it, they, they had seen past Paul and Silas's broken bodies. They had heard something past their prayers and their hymns. Clearly, these guys had something. They had a, a presence. They had a joy. They had a freedom. They had a holy confidence that went pretty deep. And I guess it was worth hanging around to get a little bit more of it. And that's precisely what happens to the jailer, too. He knows whatever's going on here, it has something to do with these two guys. And he rushes in, and he's terrified, and he falls down in front of them. And then he asks them the question for the ages. What must I do to be saved? So you, you can maybe see why I don't think he really knows all that he's asking. Maybe he's, he's terrified. He's just lived through this violent earthquake. He's just considered killing himself and escaped it by a hair's breadth. And now he's unsure of what his future will be. And it probably won't be good. What he wants to know is exactly how he can get out of this mess. Never had a night like this in his life. And these beat-up guys seem to have everything under control. So what must I do to be saved? He has no idea how deep that question can go. <laughs> but Paul and Silas take the hand off, and they go deep. Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved and your household. which seems maybe 
like an odd thing to say in that very moment unless we stop for a moment and really think about it. Paul and Silas, they know some stuff. They know that this guy wasn't made to feel the disabling, destructive fear that he is feeling in that moment. He wasn't made for that. They know that this guy wasn't made to kill himself and that a whole lot of broken, really bad things had to spot, conspire together to get him to the place where he thought that he ought to kill himself. They know that this guy could, he could have the resources that he needs to face whatever his future is unafraid, but he doesn't have those resources right now. They know that this little girl had not been made for slavery. They know that they should not have been beaten and jailed for setting her free. And they know that the guys who railroaded them into that jail were not made for bigotry. They were not made to be racists, but it's stuck in their hearts anyway. And all of these things, they know every last one of these things are because the world is not what it's supposed to be. They know that all of these things are being experienced that day because the world is not like it's supposed to be, not like it was made to be. All of these things are being experienced because this world is broken and it's cracked and it's wounded by sin and that brokenness and that woundedness extends to your heart and mind. They know all that stuff. And they know and they believe in the deepest part of themselves that Jesus has come to remake and to restore broken things and cracked things. They know deep in the deepest part of who they are that Jesus has come to heal our wounds, that he has come to make everything new. And so they know that at the cross he took your sin and mine on his back and that he was crushed under the weight of everything that our sin has ever done and ever will do. They know that at his resurrection, he became the first fruits of this new incredible life he had promised. They know at his ascension that he is seated at the right hand of the real Most High, ruling over his people, defending his people, praying for his people forever, the true king of the world. So Paul and Silas know all that stuff and they believe all of that stuff. And so they say, believe in King Jesus and enter into the true story of the world by faith and you'll be saved. Because you'll be forgiven. You'll be given the presence of God through his spirit. And you will be given a whole new life which is being slowly changed to look like Jesus himself. And no one says it's going to be easy. But if you have all of those things, you have everything you need to figure out the rest of life. That's the word they spoke to that man and to his whole household that day. And he believed. It's still around midnight, mind you. The jailer takes him to his home and he washes their wounds before he is washed in baptism. 
Paul and Silas baptize his whole family that night, and before too long they're eating a meal, they're having a party, and Luke says he rejoiced with his entire household that he had believed in God. What must I do to be saved? You know that jailer is not the last person to ask that question for sure. And the answer, believe in Jesus, always takes people like you and me deeper than we could have ever dreamed when we asked it. Deep into the healing, gracious, freeing, forgiving, restoring love of God. Let me pray for us. Father, you were setting everyone free that day. (laughs) And you're setting everyone free all of the time because of what you have done for us in Jesus. (laughs) And so we ask what we always ask, and that is that you would help us to see and to believe. To rest in him who has loved us to the end. To rest in him who has loved us first. Father, do that for our good so that we can in turn take that love out into this broken world. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.